What if you had everything? Money, power, romance. What would you do with it? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805. Today we're going to talk about Solomon, a man who truly had everything. We'll look at his life, but more than that, we're going to end with a challenge that you can make a more eternally significant impact with your life than he did with all of the wisdom, wealth, power, and riches that he had. We're going to do that in our lesson today that's entitled Solomon, The Uses and Abuses of Wisdom, Power, and Love. Here's where we are in our study through the Bible. We just finished talking about David. David trusted God from his youth. He killed the lion, he killed the bear, he ends up killing Goliath. He was actually anointed as king when he was very young, but he had to wait anywhere from between 10 to 15 years before he actually became king. As a king, he united all of Israel. He was a tremendous military and organizational success. Yes, he sinned, but he repented and he was forgiven. And in his later years, he did probably his most glorious and important work in that he prepared everything for the temple. All of the wealth, all of the resources, all of the people, everything was ready for Solomon. Now Solomon was his successor and in some ways kind of an odd one. He was actually Bathsheba's second son and he was the tenth son overall so it didn't just go to the oldest son. And also too he was loved by God from his birth. In 2 Samuel 12 it tells us then David comforted Bathsheba and when he slept with her she conceived and gave birth to a son named Solomon. And the Lord loved the baby and sent congratulations and blessings through Nathan the prophet. David nicknamed the baby Jedidiah meaning beloved of Jehovah. And so he started out being a very loved child and not only was he loved by Jehovah but his name Solomon in the Hebrew is Selama, which it probably sounds like and it actually comes from the word Shalom which of course means peace that wholeness of peace and body mind and soul he had every gift that could be given a baby he was born into this very wealthy ruling family and he had God's love and there was much more to come for him he was as I said God's and David's choice to be king now there was some intrigue and various things happened that aren't really worth going into now but finally he was made king and when he was made king David gives him this charge he says be strong act like a man and observe what the Lord your God requires walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go and that the Lord will keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. So Solomon knew God's requirements. He knew that obeying the law was absolutely critical to the success of his kingdom and it should have been the non-negotiable foundation of his life. And he started out pretty well. He becomes one of the greatest kings of Israel, particularly in terms of wealth. He started, though, with immense amounts of wealth that were given to him by his father. And these were primarily to be used in the construction of the temple. 
But then God comes to him when he makes this huge number of sacrifices to worship God early in his reign. And he says, he, he gives Solomon this extraordinary offer. He says, ask me for anything. And Solomon replies in a way that was very pleasing to God, where he says, I need wisdom to know how to rule these people. And that pleases God, and God says, not only will I give you wisdom, but I will give you every material blessing. And so Solomon builds a temple, but he also builds palaces and fortresses and other public works. Now, at various times in his life, and we'll we'll go through it a little bit more, he writes, he not only builds and rules, but he writes the Song of Solomon and Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, these books in many ways mirror the progression of his life. So I'm going to talk about them as I kind of go through his life. I, I, it kinda, I hate it when I, when I have to say something like this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. And that is, it is so frustrating. There is never enough time to go into detail on all the things that I'd like to talk about. And of course, we're really shortening Solomon's life and some of the books that we're going to talk about, but we're going through the whole Bible in a year, so um, do please forgive the condensation, but I hope we'll hit the important points, the high points of things. But let's talk about these three books, because they're very important. Again, they mirror a progression in Solomon's life, and also we can see in him sort of what he was thinking and doing at the time. But the books overall, it's important to understand that these books are part of what is known as the wisdom literature of the Bible. The book of Job is also in this category. And if you haven't listened to the podcast on that book, on the book of Job, please go back and listen to it. I think it will help you understand some of these writings that you're going to be reading for the coming weeks also. The cautions that I gave you on the book of Job also apply here. And the number one caution is that you must read the entire book for the book to make sense. This is particularly true with the book of Ecclesiastes, which we'll get to in a little bit. But also, too, in addition with the need to read the entire book, and that that is how the authors assumed you would read it, pulling verses out of context is extremely misleading. We all know that the actual verse numbers and the way the Bible is broken into chapters and, and all these divisions, this was a very, very late thing in the translation of the Bible. And when they were written, they were just entire books, many of them letters or treatises or sermons or histories or whatever. And pulling bits and pieces out is not something the that the original writer intended, and you will totally misinterpret verses if you do that. So, so please don't do that. Um, So let me talk a little bit more about some of the things that uh, sort of correlated with Solomon's life in the different books. First of all, the Song of Solomon. Now, this was most likely written early in his life, and this is a picture of love and romance and physical love and sexual attraction, and it's really a very romantic book. In some Uh, commentators, there was a time in the history of the church when they saw everything as an allegory. And you will still find some writings where they say that this is really an allegory of the love of Christ for the church. I'm sorry, I don't think so. That could get really weird. Um, It just, you know, you can do some really strange contortions of verses and, and things like that. 
I believe, and many commentators agree on this, that it is simply a love poem. He is celebrating the love of a man for a woman. And what is so sad about this is it shows you how he felt when he was young. And obviously, this really deteriorated as he got older. Because as we know, if you've you've read his story at all, you know he ends up with with, uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines. And this beautiful idea of man woman one-on-one love just it it left but uh, we do see this wonderful story of love and to just a reminder that God invented it God enjoys that it's his gift to us then the book of Proverbs Proverbs was written later in Solomon's life Obviously, it was when he was at the height of his reputation for wisdom, because that's what the whole book is about. Now, it uh, one of the most common problems when we read Proverbs today, and by the way, I am going to, in the next podcast, I will be talking totally just about what we can learn from the book of Proverbs. But one of the biggest problems with reading the book today is that Proverbs are not promises. They're Proverbs, and again, I will talk about that more in the next podcast, but they are wisdom statements that if you do certain things based on a desire to serve God, there's a more likely chance that things will have a positive outcome, but there are no guarantees. Now, let me give you an example of this, and this is one that is just terribly misused, and what's sad when verses are misused like this is that people didn't get angry with God. And they really shouldn't because it's just that they interpreted a verse incorrectly. And the verse that I'm talking about here, but this happens in a lot of Proverbs, is in Proverbs 22.6 where it says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, we all know, sadly, that kids from really good families can turn out very, very badly. And sometimes when they are old, they do not turn from it, they get worse. There are a number of things going on here. First of all, God does not interfere with free will. No matter what you do in training a child, they still have free will. But, and this is important, and this is why we need to read Proverbs, you have a much better chance of them turning out well if they're trained well as children. And if you live a godly life before them, which is what a lot of Proverbs also teaches. You have to be careful, though. Um, Obviously, you can do all of those things, and there's just a much, much better chance that they'll turn out fine. But God doesn't guarantee it. But think about it this way. If you don't do that, there's probably very little chance that they'll turn out well. So in the next podcast, we'll be talking more about how Proverbs can benefit us and can teach us, particularly in our world today, because it is so lacking, not only in in many ways, biblical knowledge, but just in common sense. And and Proverbs can help us a lot in this way. But Solomon's life goes along. He was known for his wisdom. Many in the world travel to hear him. They bring gifts to him. They ask him questions. He begins building with his father's gifts and with all the wealth that he was given. But he doesn't stop there. 
progressively he needs more wealth and he begins trade and he conscripts labor and he begins to heavily tax the people and not only does he build the temple but he builds palaces and a, a entire palace just for one wife pharaoh's daughter and he does public works and he builds fortresses and he just keeps going and going and going and he needs more and more and more money and people to do all of these things god appears to him a second time in the midst of this but this time it's a warning and it says when solomon finished building the temple of the lord and the royal palace and had achieved all he desired to do the lord appeared to him a second time the lord said to him i've heard the prayer and plea you've made before me i've consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever my eyes and heart will always be there as for you if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as david your father did and do all i command and observe my decrees and laws i will establish your royal throne over israel forever as i promised david but if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees i've given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them then i will cut off israel from the land i've given them and will reject this temple i've consecrated for my name israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples this temple will become a heap of rubble solomon was warned he was richer and greater in wisdom than all the other kings of the earth all of the people people from all over in first kings 10:23 through 26 says sought audience with solomon year to year to hear his wisdom people brought him gifts articles of gold and silver robes weapons spices horses and mules it says too that he accumulated chariots and horses he had 1400 chariots and 12000 horses which he kept in chariot cities and also with him in jerusalem he also got a really good export business going because it says he exported them to the hittites and the arameans now that sounds good some of these things are talking about tells us what solomon did but that little statement there of what he did with the horses and the chariots and all that that in and of itself was a direct violation of god's command in deuteronomy 17:16 where it says the king moreover must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to egypt to get more of them which is where they got them from for the lord has told you you are not to go back that way and then the passage goes on and says he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold solomon disobeyed that command but he didn't stop there it goes on in 1 Kings 11 and says King Solomon however loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter Moabites Ammonites Edomites Sidonians and Hittites they were from nations about which the Lord told Israel you must not enter marry with them i mean it's kind of like little parentheses here you know how much clearer can you be don't do this because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods nevertheless Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray.
As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And little, again, a parenthesis here. This is beyond horrible. We just read through it, and we just say, oh, you know, foreign you know, gods, idols, blah, blah, blah. Moloch, that was the pagan god that, uh, this was huge statue with its arms outraised, and they would put living children on this idol where there was, when there was this huge fire going inside the idol, and they would roll back into the belly of the idol and be burnt alive. This is what Solomon was participating in. And then, obviously, it goes on to say, So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high temple for Shemas, the detestable god of Moloch, and for Moloch, again repeating what I was just talking about, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. God was not going to let this stand. He appears to him a third time, and this time it's in judgment. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And then the book goes in, uh, it goes on and it talks about the rebellions against him. Hadad the Edomite, Rezan the son of Eliada, and Jeroboam, who would become the first king of Israel when the kingdom divides after Solomon's death. There was constant trouble and rebellion. And then somewhere near the end of his life, Solomon writes down meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun. And the book of Ecclesiastes goes on and on about the futility and frustrations of life. And then finally he ends it's a, a, as, with a testament as to what happens when you've been given everything, but you just use it all for your own pleasure, and finally you realize what you've done. Ecclesiastic ends with, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. What happened to Solomon? How could someone who had so much and so sadly. Well, let's look back at his life for some cautions and some lessons. And we will see that Solomon begins well. 
except that, and that's out of this one verse that I'm going to tell you about a little bit, right from the beginning he had what some commentators refer to as little sins, but if there's anything we should learn from this is there's no such thing as little sins. I've been reading, uh, just for various reasons, some books on um, neurobiology and on habits and all that, because you're never too old to get better habits and things like that, and one of the things that they talk about a lot in the various books I've been reading is how we literally get grooves in our brain, literally in the brain matter, where, you know, when we do something that we that kind of lays down a track so to speak they they often use the same example of a cd track or a record or something like that and the more you repeat an action the stronger that neurological groove becomes that tie becomes that's where we develop habits and lord willing if we develop really good habits then we will do them without even thinking about it i know one of my probably i it's probably the best habit that I have in my life. I absolutely cannot start my day without reading my Bible. I started doing that many, many years ago. And uh, if any of you have been in my Sunday school classes in the past, I used to give out this little uh, refrigerator magnet. I should probably make up some more again that says, no Bible, no breakfast, no Bible, no breakfast. And that's that's just a totally ingrained habit in my life. But there are many kinds of habits that we can have. And Early on in Solomon's life, this is what started. Um, Solomon showed his love for the Lord, it says in 1 Kings 3, by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that, oh, what a, what a, what a little phrase, except that, he offered sacrifices and burned incense on high places. And then a little bit later, it talks, or actually just before that, it talks about how he made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. These happened really early in his reign. Now, what in the world was wrong with that? Well, let's look at each of them a little more closely. First, I'm going to talk about those sacrifices. Again, this whole thing on sacrifices on high places, uh, some of the commentators said, oh, you know, kind of basically everybody did it then and God didn't really mind because they didn't have a, a set place. No, that's absolutely not true. In Leviticus 17, it says, Speak to Aaron, his sons, and all the Israelites, and tell them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Anyone from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox, sheep, or goat in the camp, or slaughters it outside the camp, instead of bringing it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, to present it as an offering to the Lord before his tabernacle, that person will be considered guilty. He has shed blood and must be cut off from his people. This is so the Israelites will bring to the Lord the sacrifices they have been offering in open country. They are to bring them to the priest at the tent of meeting and offer them to the Lord. The priest will then sprinkle blood on the Lord's altar at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat as a pleasing aroma. They must no longer offer their sacrifices to the goat demons that they have prostituted themselves with. This will be a permanent statute for them throughout their generations. Did you hear that? permanent statute throughout their generations. Say to them, anyone from the house of Israel or from the foreigners who live among them who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice but does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to the Lord, that person must be cut off from his people. Seems pretty clear. Now, the reason that this was a problem, this sort of little thing that Solomon did, is God has always wanted to be worshipped in the way that he requires. 
From the time of the building of the tabernacle after the people left Egypt, they were told to bring their offerings to a central place to be offered by the appointed priests. Now, at times, offerings were made in various places for really special sorts of things or whatever, but God's requirement overall didn't change. Now, Gibeon was where the bronze altar was. Solomon knew that. This is where he goes for a big uh, special celebration when God first appears to him and he does the the thousand offerings. But it says that he made offerings in various high places. That was forbidden. And it wasn't a little sin. The law clearly forbade it. But he apparently, even early on, decided that he knew better he was going to offer things where he wanted to. And then marrying a pagan wife. The first one is mentioned as that he, he marries the um, daughter of the king of Egypt. And some of the commentators, I, you know, I just am thinking, what in the world are they? I don't even know what it is. Um, I've studied ancient history and some of the things that that some of them say are just kind of goofy because what a number of them have said, well, Solomon obviously went there and witnessed to her and then after she became a believer, um, he married her. Oh, I don't think so. Um, marriages like this were purely politically expedient and that is obviously why Solomon did it. Um, I doubt seriously if he had this little, you know, mission trip to Egypt to, to win the daughter of Pharaoh. That was a common political practice and then other commentators say well you know that was just what they always did at the time uh you were expected to do that no you weren't um there is never in God's word where he says just because something might be politically expedient or this is (laughs) the old what everybody's doing it, it you're never given permission to do that in Deuteronomy 7, again, God is really clear. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you the many nations, the Hittites, Gergesites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations, larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods now some commentators say well you know the Egyptians aren't in that list but remember earlier he said in numerous times in the the laws he says don't go back to Egypt don't go back to Egypt you you know I brought you out of Egypt he concludes this passage you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Solomon traded political alliances for obedience to God. And then what began as a little sin in that developed into his most destructive lifestyle. And to repeat what we talked about earlier, but Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, from the nations whom the Lord had said, you shall not intermarry with them. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. 
But that wasn't all that was wrong with Solomon. These are some of the, what I would call, really big sins. And unlike David, who committed some whoppers, we don't see Solomon repenting. But as I I really looked at his life and thought about him, there are other things, too, that are really sad about him. Uh, First of all, he was really selfish in all of his gifts. He was given wisdom and wealth and all of these things. And what did he do with it? Well, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you find out because there's constant repetition of I, 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 me, me, me. Um, He says, for example, in Ecclesiastes 1.16, I said to myself, look. I'm better educated than any of the kings before me in Jerusalem. I have greater wisdom and knowledge. And then in Ecclesiastes 2, I decided to try the road of drink, while still holding steadily to my course of wisdom. Next, I changed my course again and followed the path of the path, excuse me, of folly, so that I could experience the only happiness most men have through their lives. Then I tried to find fulfillment by inaugurating great public works programs, homes, vineyards, gardens, parks, orchards for myself and reservoirs to hold water to irrigate my plantations. Next, I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born within my household. I also bred great herds and flocks, more than any of the kings before me. I collected silver and gold as taxes from many kings and provinces. In the cultural arts, I organized men's and women's choirs and orchestras, and there were my beautiful concubines. So I became greater than any of the kings in Jerusalem before me. And in all, I remained clear-eyed so that I could evaluate all these things. Anything I wanted, I took. And I did not restrain myself from any joy. I even found great pleasure in hard work. The pleasure was, indeed, my only reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I tried, it was all so useless, a chasing after the wind, and there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. How tragic. He was so focused on himself, and I couldn't help but think of the contrast with his father David. And there are other verses that are like this, but I just want to point out one because of time. But in uh, Chronicles 14.2 in today's living, it says, David now realized why the Lord had made him king and why he had made his kingdom so great. It was for a special reason to give joy to God's people. David was king, and he knew he was king to serve his people well. And he did that in many, many ways when you read about his life. But for Solomon, it was all about him. Nations came to hear him, give him gifts. He could have given them a witness of how great Jehovah was and invited them to worship with him. But he didn't do that. He worshipped their gods. And finally, at the end of the book, he turns and he affirms that living for an obeying God is what he should have done. But it was too late. The nation was divided. It would be destroyed as a power. And it was his fault. Now, let's look at application of this because Solomon's life is really sad but there's a lot of things we can learn from it first of all the most important thing is we are given the gifts we're given to serve others we live to make God's greatness known not our own in the Old Testament Israel was blessed to be a blessing and we're supposed to do the same thing in 2nd Corinthians 520 it says we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God 
Whatever we have or whatever we are, it's to be used for God's glory. Now, let me just give you an an earthly example of this. Think about it. You know, we don't think a whole lot of people who inherit wealth and then act like they've earned it. Um, Maybe they have a company and they've inherited it or they've inherited all this money and they think that they're just the greatest thing. That's so foolish. And we laugh at them and, you know, behind their back usually, but they haven't earned it. They don't deserve it. And what's sad is oftentimes people that are like that who perhaps run a company or whatever, they are just in it for themselves. They're not kind to their workers. They're very selfish. They they aren't really very good to work for or to be around, and we certainly don't respect them. Now, we're kind of the same if we think that all the gifts that we have from God, we earned, we deserve. You know, we can do with them what we want. Well, that's just not true. God gave us everything that we have, and we're to use it for his glory. I love this old hymn. A number of old hymns came to mind, and uh, one of them, it's it's the hymn channels only. And let me just, uh, I'll read you one stanza and then the chorus. It says, How I praise thee, precious Savior, that thy love laid hold on me. Thou hast saved and cleansed and filled me, that I thy channel be. And then the channel, uh, then the refrain goes, channels only blessed master, but with all thy wondrous power flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. Let me read that chorus again. Channels only blessed master, but with all thy wondrous power flowing through us, thou canst use us every day in every hour. Channels only. That's what we are. We want Jesus to come through. That means that to be a witness, it's it's not just the words we say. Some people are kind of scared of quote-unquote witnessing because they think it means nailing someone and sitting down and reading the four spiritual laws or some plan of salvation to them or putting in a good word for God here and there. Yeah, that might be what you do sometimes. But really, if we're a channel for Jesus, everything that we do, how we live, how we do our work, how we do our job, how we treat the person at Starbucks when they're slammed and maybe they mess up on our our latte or just, you know, there's so many opportunities that we can be Christ-like in our lives, that we can truly be channels only for his life to show in our world. Another old hymn, I was just kind of thinking of old hymns as I was putting this together. It says, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me, all his wonderful passion and purity. O thou spirit divine, all my nature refine till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. And I love this. I love that little phrase, all my nature refined, because we aren't usually, we're really not very good reflections of Jesus. But we can grow in it. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is, is really encouraging. It says, but we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. We don't have the veil of the tabernacle. We aren't closed off. We have a face-to-face relationship with God. And let me, let me go back to the verse. We all with unveiled faces are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We see Jesus in his word. When we study it, when we think about it, when we look and pray about times to apply it, that's how he will refine us more and more to resemble him in a world that so much needs it.
And I want you to think about this because it is true. If you do that, your life will be far more important in light of eternity than all the wisdom and riches of Solomon. And I'm praying for all of you that you will behold more and more the glory of Jesus, that you might be like him and reflect that to your world. That's all for now. Please check out the notes for this lesson on the www.bible805 podcast. And please tell your friends about the podcast. That might be one way that you can help them see Jesus. And and maybe talk to them about it. Maybe discuss it. Whatever. But until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.